The Working Artist Project is brought to you by Second Line Arts Collective. Learn how you can support at secondlinearts.org. We're creating a platform for those who are curious. One that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time, captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist Project. All right, y'all, welcome to The Working Artist Project. My name is Darian Douglas. And just a second here, we're going to have Mr. Gregory I.G. What's up, Greg? Good afternoon or good evening, Mr. Douglas. How are you doing tonight? I'm good, man. We, uh, we, we're on a whole new platform tonight. We're trying something new. You know, the 2020 has been a year of figuring all the technology out. And I have to say, it's nice to watch the uh, five or six months of progress we have made throughout these platforms. <laughs> Absolutely, man. So, hey, if this is your first time seeing us, welcome. We, we have not been on YouTube, but Mr. Patrick Bartley is our guest tonight. And he was like, yo, get on YouTube because y'all old. And uh, <laughs> hey, you know what? One of the things that I really love about being a teacher is about three or four years ago, I remember telling my students, I was like, yo, follow me on Facebook. And they all looked at me and they were like, uh, Facebook is for old people. And I, that was that was a revelation to me. So see, you're about see. three years behind me. I'm hip, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, listen, y'all, so a lot of y'all might already know, but Mr. Patrick Bartley is originally from Hollywood, Florida. He's a saxophonist, as I like to call him. And he's a, he's also an amazing human being. And uh, honestly, I think he's a genius. And we want to welcome Mr. Patrick Bartley to the Working Artist Project. Woo! Pat! Hey, man, that's a lie. I did not tell you that you old. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you did. You was like, "How you doing, man? Good, good. To have, good to be here. I'm good, Thank bro. you, man. man. Welcome, Patrick. Welcome. But yeah, man. So let's get let's get things rolling, man. I want to I want to get into your your past. How did you How did you mm. even get to the saxophone? And uh, where are you from? Man, well, as you said before, I'm I'm originally from Hollywood, Florida. I was technically born in Fort Lauderdale, uh, Florida, Jackson Memorial Hospital. At 1.36 p.m. on January 7, 1993. Yes, I remember those numbers. Wow. <laughs> um, it's very important if you ever try to do a birth chart or something like that. Right, or <laughs> a horoscope or something, right? They have they pinpoint exact what you're rising and you're falling. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> no, but yeah, I remember that. And uh, it's ironic, not ironic, but it's very fitting that even though I grew up in Hollywood, Florida, I spent most of my time in Fort Lauderdale. So I like to tell people from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, because um, it's the greater metropolitan area of Broward County and where a lot of stuff happened. My high school and middle school was there, which is actually where I learned how to play saxophone, was in middle school, um, under the tutelage of Mr. Melton Mustafa Jr., um, who was, of course, the son of the great, um, the late great Melton Mustafa Sr., who's played with everyone from Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Michael Brecker, all these, you know, everyone from a bunch of different walks of life. Um, and he was one of the people that inspired all of South Florida, really, to continue on the jazz tradition um, from the likes of people like Art Blakey and all those people who came through and uh, played down there. So I was very, I'm very grateful to have been under that kind of tutelage. But, you know, saxophone was not the first thing that I wanted to do. I originally wanted to be a visual artist, as um, many people might know by now. That's what I started with. Um, when I was eight years old, um, I got a chance to be a part of the, the arts program uh, at my elementary school where you get to pick like your major and minor, <laughs> basically trying to sit you up early. Um, so what I, I originally wanted to do was art. That was my main thing. I was like, I want to draw. Um, that's what my mom, my dad, they all thought I was going to do that. Um, uh, so I ended up drawing a lot. I was doing 2D and three-dimensional art. Um, but I had to pick something on the side as my minor. I was like, okay, well, you know, I grew up in the hood. I grew up in the hood in Liberia down in, you know, Southwest Broward. I didn't want people to see me dance, so I wasn't going to do no dancing. Um, <laughs> musical theater and drama seemed a little boring to me at the time. Um, and I really wanted to do strings because, you know, they let people, they didn't do that. But for the entire first year, we we're just plucking. I wanted to bow right away. I was impatient. I want to get into the hands-on thing. So um, band seemed to be the most neutral thing. It was just, ah, it's whatever. It's cool. It's fine. <laughs> you know, art was like, yeah, that's what I really want to do. But band was kind of like, yeah, it's neutral. It's fine. Let's do it. Um, and so I ended up doing, um, ended up picking band. But when it was time to pick our instruments, I wanted to seem like, I don't know, like I was hip, like I knew something. So I said, I want to play cornet. Like, 
that would take like two or three weeks to get like we don't have any cornets you know and everybody picked trumpets they're all out of trumpet so the front you know the this bunch of kids in the front there's one one kid named Lyndon. You said, pick clarinet, pick clarinet. Everybody's like, pick clarinet. I was like, okay, all right, I'll pick clarinet. It's peer pressure. <laughs> pick clarinet, whatever. And it was, you know, basically, it's how I got started on my instrument. You know, I, it just, just happened like that. Because as I was going through simultaneously art and music, my band director at the time, Mr. Cancilla, um, um, definitely, sorry, Mr. Mr. Kleinman, actually. Mr. Cancilla was before him. Mr. Kleinman, um, who actually taught at Broad College as well. I'm not sure if he still teaches there, but... Um, started broad college and God bless him because he's the one that went to my mom and said, Hey, like your kid has something special. You should continue him doing music. Um, you know, this is not just, you know, he's like excelling really fast. So I eventually kind of dropped art because I had to audition to get into, I wanted to get in middle school. I had to audition into the arts program so that I could get outside of my feeder school and go into, you know, the greater Broward County area where there'd be more artistic opportunities. And so I couldn't do both anymore. I had to pick one. And out of all the things, music was the thing that stuck out. So I ended up making it into the um, Parkway Middle School band program, um, into the arts program for clarinet. Um, and that's essentially how music took over. And I still wanted to do art. That's still, it never left. That's just, you know, it's almost like, you know, you grow up in a certain place and you take, you know, they say you can take the boy out of the hood, but you can't take the hood out of the boy kind of thing like that. So art was still in me. And I may have been taken out of the program, but that was still a very big part of my life. So everything I did with music to this day um, is very influenced by the visual aspects of what I was trying to achieve. And so that was a big part. Um, but in order to play in the jazz band, to wrap up the story, in order to play in the jazz band, I had to play saxophone. That's what Milton Mustafa said. If you want to be in the jazz band, you got to play saxophone because, you know, we're not doing Dixieland trad or anything like that. That wasn't, we weren't doing that as 11-year-olds. <laughs> so like, you know, you got you know, to be in the big band. There was no Barry player. So I went from clarinet to Barry, wow. <laughs> you know, just like it's like a little 11 year old kid. And that's how I got started on saxophone. Um, Did you have the Barry on yeah, one of those stands? Of course, because <laughs> parents couldn't afford to just buy a Barry. You know, they rented me an alto. If I had to have a saxophone at home, they rented me an alto. And that's the alto is what I had at home. And Barry is what I played at school. So the alto is what I ended up playing more because it's what I had at home. And that eventually became the instrument that kind of chose me. So everything that happened in life was kind of just like a, a rolling stone of you know, kind of just almost like more like tumbleweed. I kind of just went with the flow, you know, like <laughs> it just kind of just happened. Sometimes and you just got every gotta... juncture. I was kind of just grateful for the opportunities that I got and tried to make the best of it um, as much as I could. You got to live and, life uh, downstream, man. You just got to go with right, the flow you know? and, and allow the universe <laughs> to take you where, where it wants you to go. Um, yeah. Yo, I love that you play clarinet. That's amazing. There's like a, a huge history and lineage of a, a great saxophone player starting on clarinet from Charlie Parker to Coltrane to, to Dolphy to we got Patrick Bartley starting on clarinet. I'm, sorry, I'm a clarinet player, so I, I got to nerd out on this for a hot second. How, do you feel, <laughs> do, do you, how do you feel like that instrument? Um, do you think it, it helped your development as a saxophone player or a woodwind player ultimately? Or like, what's your advice Absolutely. on from, from, for more reasons than one. Um, the reason why it helped is because, first of all, saxophone is a more popular, more versatile mainstream instrument. So um, learning clarinet first, then saxophone is a lot easier. The transition is just a lot easier because, again, there's less back pressure on the instrument. So it's a lot easier free blowing. Um, but you already learn to have air control from playing on clarinet since you have to have an even tone throughout all the registers. And then also it's all open hole on clarinet. So going to saxophone when it's all closed hole, it just feels like a walk in the park. So like those two things, and also it's the same, if you press the octave key on saxophone, it's the same register. It's a, sorry, it's the same uh, uh, key on both registers, no matter what. So all in all, it's a lot easier because you don't have to form that linguistic link. It's like learning a language, you know, when you're nine versus when you're 19 or 29 or 30. You know, it's like, it's, it's totally different because like you have to think a lot more consciously if you learn a new instrument when you're in your 20s or 30s versus learning a new instrument when you're like eight. Totally. So um, I felt very grateful that I learned clarinet first because I feel like we we're actually just talking about this in our discord. Um, those of y'all in the J music uh, <laughs> in, the, in the chat right now, we we're just talking about this in Woodwind discussion, how like I can't imagine learning saxophone first and then going to clarinet. Like it seems like a nightmare to me just because I, I can just I can just see like so many people just complain about that octave and a 10th jump or so octave and a 12th jump or whatever. You know, like the fact that it's different when you play B flat, all that kind of stuff like that. But um, it also makes it easier when you have to then, as a saxophone player, if you want to play in a big band or a pit or whatever, 
switching to clarinet to double because you already have it down. So there's less that you actually have to practice um, with regards to that. Now, obviously, because saxophone is the more like enticing instrument, it's the easier instrument. It makes you want to play it more. So you still have to practice clarinet. You have to keep it up. You know, otherwise you'll lose it. It's very possible to lose it. It's like exercising your Spanish or French or Chinese, whatever. Like you have to keep it up. Um, even though you started earlier. Alvin Baptiste so used to always tell me the clarinet is a jealous mistress. And if you don't give her enough attention, <laughs> she'll leave you. <laughs> it's so true, man. It's so true. Yeah. But yeah, that's basically, so I, I agree that um, the clarinet is, is kind of, I don't know, I call it a cheat code. You know, like if you learn that early, you have a leg up, cool. you know, that's for cool. me, flute is what's hard. This it's this thing right here that gives me the trouble because it's so foreign to me. But <laughs> but I've been practicing that nonstop basically every day since the quarantine started. I feel like I'm getting better. So. I'm sure you, I'm sure you mastered the flute already, man. I, w- I want to change gears because to to the J music thing, man. Because you okay. just mentioned it, and I mean I didn't even I remember when you first told me about J music. I'm like J music. What's what is that? What is that? I'm thinking K-pop J. What? How do we? How does this connect? And you were telling me about it, but. It sounds like all the people here know about J music and they J music fans. And, yeah, they do. <laughs> and you just put a new record out, uh, Meta Groove. Yeah. And it's it's you playing a music of Persona Five, right? That's a video game. And yes. I'm, I'm sure we all we all here we know what it is, but so, maybe somebody <laughs> old here and they don't know. So if you sure sure tell sure. tell us about that process and how you connected those two things. So um, without delving too much into the specifics of Persona Five itself, um, basically. You know, again, the whole thing about J music starting, like the, the shortest summary is to understand that at the same time that I was like, one of the things that made me want to become an artist is the fact that I was playing video games first. It was my absolute first thing, you know, technically cars was, it's kind of weird. Like when I was four, like um, my aunt gave me all these different like car, like car pamphlets and stuff like that. And apparently my mom and dad told me that my first words was like Ford and Mitsubishi. Wow. So like Fuda, Mitsubishi. <laughs> like I was saying that when I was a baby. So it was, I was destined to love cars. Um, and still to this day, one of my favorite games of all time is Gran Turismo. Uh, I prefer Gran Turismo to games like Mario Kart and Need for Speed because Gran Turismo is more realistic. You actually have to like get different types of driver's license to drive different cars and to participate in different races. You got to like do all these different cone exercises. You got to like do acceleration and braking basics, cornering basics. There's like so much stuff and you get to like, Instead of just picking like Ferrari and Bugatti, like you have like a Honda Civic from 1997. You have a freaking Skyline G- like V-Spec from 1999. You know what I'm saying? Like you get, to, you get to learn all these different car parts, you know? And, you know, when I was a kid, these cars were new. So that was super exciting for me. Um, so I was, I was always getting into that. Um, and so video games were a big part of my life. Um, that's what got me into wanting to art, do art. And of course, watching anime as well with Japanese animation. So like, you know, of course, you know, Dragon Ball Z, you know, like those things like that. Of course, the bigger names as well, Naruto, One Piece, stuff like that. Um, I was affected by a lot of that stuff as a kid because I saw that and I was like, this is it's a little different than, you know, Scooby-Doo. You know, it's a little different than, you know, Ed, Ed, Nettie. Like, even those are my, my good shows, too. There was always something different about that I was attracted to. And it wasn't until I got to middle school that I realized it was all Japanese. And that, like, really is that's when I really started to, like, delve really hard into, like, what the culture was. I wanted to find out, like... You know, because by that time, by the time I got to middle school, the Internet was in full swing. So we could go to the library. We could check out things. We could like I could, you know, take a, a CD or a floppy drive, a floppy disk and put it in the and that I would download web pages because I didn't have Internet at home. So I would download web pages and open them up like and, and explore like, you know, just so I could read the text and everything and like get the MIDI files and all kind of stuff like that. So oh, that's, there you that, go, Derek. That's some, that's some old school <laughs> stuff right there. <laughs> I know, but man, it's funny. Like I said, I'm I'm young. Like like I said, like technically, I'm young. I'm only 27. Like I'm you know about to turn 28, but I I still had that experience of doing that, yeah. you know. And so I, you know, I'm very again, I'm really grateful for it. I was kind of like in a transition between like, you know, growing up still experiencing beepers and cassette players and you know boom boxes, but at the same time also growing up through high school having social media become a thing. It's really interesting transition like phase to be in and like yeah. I'm it's been a really interesting thing navigating that you know as a as an adult now um not being so fully accepting of social media but at the same time you know growing up with it becoming a thing yeah. so um, that's a good point man go ahead I was just gonna say before Greg chimes in here that I remember when Facebook two things first first I want to say DBZ is probably <laughs> the greatest thing that ever happened yes, on amen. earth I remember like after school I would run Cause you only had a yeah. I would get on Bro. the bus, 
Yes. Like full speed because you only had a certain amount of time. You're going to miss the time. If you know, missed I it, keep, you missed it. Yeah. And most of the episode was. <sighs> bro, I keep telling people about that. You had to run home from school, bro. Yeah. I would like as soon as that bell rang, I'm looking, I'm looking at yeah. I'm looking at the watch. I'm putting my book back and I'm running home, man. I'm Because <laughs> you'll miss it. You're like, damn, man. Oh, man. Yep. But but that yep. that I was going to also say about that transition to social media, because I was in college. It was my freshman year. And all my friends were on Facebook. I was like, what is that? Like, I don't want to. Like, yeah. You're going to get on. Ugh, I don't want to do that. Like, and, and I mean, I resisted yep. it that whole Same. year. In second year of school, I was like, all right, I'm going to get on. And I thought it was stupid. You know? Same. It's like, this is like, people are like, you can talk to girls on. I was like, I can. She's right there. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Yeah, I was middle of high school for me, and yeah. I, I felt the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy to think of like how much life has changed with the advent of going going from saving web pages at school and bringing them bringing them home with the floppy disk, <laughs> bro. To, to 1. Facebook, one point four megabytes gets you a lot of info. You can put a lot of stuff on that thing, man. Dude, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Web pages didn't take a lot, but no. The, the point I was trying to make with all that is that you know that was a big part of of my development because I thought it was so cool and it was so different than what I could get in any other situation. And so I wanted to find more about it. And so I kept investigating it as much as possible. Um, but then I was, you know, by the time I started learning jazz, there was a, another interesting conflict of interest because at the same time I was learning about that stuff. Um, I was also learning about Charlie Parker because my band, you know, band written Milton Mustafa, he was just like, you know, you playing alto. All right, now you're ready to look at the Omni book. Okay. So, you know, I was looking at the Omni book, listen to these recordings. And at the same time, I was like online, this website, like Gaia online, like role-playing animating chat rooms, like on the internet while I'm also learning about Charlie Parker and Cannonball Adderley. But then once I found out in high school, like it was like the end of my sophomore year, I was like, you can study music in college? Like, I just didn't know that you could do that. I was like, what? That's crazy. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was like, all right, now I know what I want to do. So then the last two years of my life, I kind of put the Jamesy thing on the back burner a little bit um, because it was still a very big part of me, but I spent a lot more time digging into like the roots of the music, the theory behind it, trying to play with as many people as I could. Um, to get that language under my belt. Um, and it helped a lot because I was still casually watching anime and casually playing video games. Um, but beyond my junior year, that wasn't really a big thing until I got to college. And there was this anime I watched on Netflix because I was like, oh, Netflix is a thing. This is, this is cool. Like, you know, like Netflix got to PS3, I think in like 2011. And so I brought my PS3 with me to college and I was like, hey, let's Netflix, this is cool. So I find this anime called Eden of the East. And then the ending song completely messed me up. It was by a band called School Food Punishment. Um, again, it's Japan, so the English names are, you know, they're, 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 they're funny. But um, they actually, like, when they were interviewed, like, where does the name come from? They're just like, oh, it just it doesn't mean anything. It's just English words that sound fun. <laughs> <laughs> they really didn't mean anything. But I don't know. I guess it sounds prog rock, sure. But School Food Punishment. And it combines so many different interesting feelings and sounds that, like, because now that I'm, you know, older, my ear is a little more developed than when it was when I was 10. You know, I'm 18, 19. Now my ear is a little more developed now. So I was hearing things that I wasn't hearing before. And the music just completely changed everything. I was like, all right, this is, I was tired of just the same jazz I was hearing. I was tired of the same, like, either it's either Spangalang or it's modern drummers just wanting to work on their sound and not hitting the drums. <laughs> like, man, hit the thing, you know? Like, <laughs> Like, yeah, I know you was going to laugh at that, bro. You know what I'm saying? Like, cats, like, bro, it's a drum, man. You know, so, like, I was either getting that or I was getting, like, only if you weren't playing anything before 1960, you weren't playing. And I was like, man, like, what? I feel like that's a uniquely New York problem. And I think that's what I was, like, experiencing. And I didn't like that. So, like, hearing this band open things up for me, I was like, wait, am I allowed to dig into this music? All right, cool. I'm going into it. That's what I... You know, I was like, all right, I spent so much time with jazz. Let me get into this. And every single song I heard from that band, every single song I kept hearing from other bands like them, like it felt like it res like I was meant to be listening to this. Stuff. It felt like this is the thing I was supposed to be doing. It felt like it just clicked with me because everything that I was feeling from the black community, like gospel, R&B, hip hop, jazz mixed with like newer things that like were not a part of my upbringing. Like when I got into like Evanescence and like, prog rock and like you know i was listening to nirvana and stuff like that a lot of things started clicking I, I felt like i heard a lot of the world's vision in the way that the japanese were interpreting art and uh and music through their own language and i felt a really deep connection and i realized that japanese music in the 20th century has a very deep connection and relationship to jazz um and a lot of different types of american music so i kept hearing 
this new way of expressing um, uh, emotions where the Japanese musicians didn't care about what was corny. They didn't care about moving to the new thing super fast. Like, I'm done with this. I want to do this. This is hip. This is hip. This is hip. They didn't care about it. They kept, they, they cared about like, what are my core values? What are the traditional aspects? Even the most adventurous bands, you can still hear this aspect of home in all of the music. There's a very deep, like, we're going to play the melodies that really make you feel like home. We're going to play the melodies that really get to the deepest part of your soul. Whereas I felt like with American music, either be it pop or jazz, it felt like the, 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 the real impetus and the real, uh, um, motive was to play like as new as possible. Like just try to find new music, new this, new this, new this, new this. And I got kind of tired of that because I want. I felt like everything is new. If I haven't heard it before, it's new. That's just what I felt. So I don't know. I kind of got tired for this constant search where it felt like people weren't trying to really be honest with their feelings. Whereas the Japanese sound and the Japanese concept felt like that's the entirety of their existence was dealing with their emotions. And I was talking to a lot of musicians every time I got to go to Japan about that. And they agreed that they never consciously thought about it like that. But that's, that's what the feeling was. And it was a really big moment of clarity for me. So basically, you know, I embarked on finding out as much about that as possible. And I started the J Music Ensemble as a way to kind of explore that music through the lens of the language that I grew up with, which was jazz. Because I do believe that jazz is the most versatile and flexible musical language. It seems to be this one thing that no matter what you do, when you learn it, or what you learn about it, you can seemingly at least touch. That doesn't mean that you can authentically play any type of music, but you can get into that music faster than if you were to learn any other musical language. And I think that's really interesting. So jazz is kind of like this Times Square 42nd Street to all the different trains that can take you to different cultures in the world, you know? I think it can be dangerous, of course, when jazz musicians look at jazz as being like an elite form of music where like it's better than other types of music. So they ended up you know, making this hierarchy. But I think if you use it as like a language to get into and to understand something else on like a pathway, then I think a lot of different um, beneficial and really, uh, what's the word? I feel like a lot of, um, a lot more, let's just say interesting for that. A lot more interesting pathways can be created um, from that perspective. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to um, deepen and enrich my musical experience um, and knowledge with that journey. I think it's it's so hip to to hear you talk about your journey as a, jazz, as a as a musician, and then also hear about your love for anime because, you know, I think I think what makes cats unique are those 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 random passions that we all have, and then how we combine them afterwards. You know, you have you have your your love of anime, your love of jazz, and then all of a sudden you have your band. <laughs> you know, something that's completely <laughs> unique and and. Um, and I, you know, I, I I hate to admit this. I, I'm not really an anime fan, and so all of this is kind of foreign to me. Um, but but what what is it about anime and and like maybe like the stories that that they tell that that kind of drew you to that versus like American TV and and, and cartoons and things like that? Well, uh, an important thing about anime to me, at least to understanding my background, is that um, the anime that I grew up watching was the anime that was in the 90s, like specifically like 80s and 90s anime, which is before it became mainstream. And the reason why that's important to understand is because um, in the late 2000s to today, um, anime has become very mainstream, very global because of the internet. Um, so instead of like importing VHSs or waiting for a certain show to come on TV, um, uh, you know, before that, everything was just essentially indie or specifically explicitly for a Japanese audience. Now you have a lot of things that's made with the international audience in mind, even though it's definitely made for Japanese speakers. You have a lot of these studios that there's like tropes, there's like patterns, like we, we already know. It's like a lot of things are kind of cookie cutter on purpose to make sure that it sells because animation is, is expensive now because since you have like a lot of CGI, you have a lot of different um, like computers that are doing this animation and a lot of knowledge you have to have as opposed to things being done by hand. Um, so, I mean, there are exceptions to that. But the thing that you have to realize that before anime became mainstream, man, if you look at some of the shows that came out in the 90s, it's so ridiculous. I call that the bebop slash postbop period of anime. And the reason why I say that is because bebop and jazz was a time where, um, and you can actually look at a timeline for anime that's kind of related to this in a way too. Um, you know, bebop, of course, was the time when the younger generation that was coming up after Louis Armstrong's generation um, was getting tired of playing the same things. They were getting kind of like, they wanted to explore more um, of the music they were hearing 
uh, with the new things that they were trying to create. Like they heard like, hey, I'm hearing this melody, but because I didn't grow up with this specific thing, I'm hearing it completely fresh, right? Like whereas Louis Armstrong was hearing like hymns and spirituals and of course like, you know, second line music and was essentially creating, you know, being a part of the language that was being created at the time that we then later called jazz because it wasn't called jazz at the time. Um, people like Charlie Parker were born in 1920, Cannonball born in 1928. So by the time they became teenagers and adults, it was the late 30s, early 40s. So like whole new music started springing up. But by 1928, when Cannonball was born, Louis Armstrong had already made every single one of his monumental Hot 5 and Hot 7 recordings. So it's really interesting to think about, right? Like by that time, that's all the music that Cannonball had access to. So those people were hearing something different. They wanted more things. So like they were, they didn't care about the traditions of old. They wanted to create something new on top of that. And they didn't really care about what the critics thought. They were just creating new stuff um, for the scene. And that's kind of what was happening with anime at the time. They weren't thinking about being marketing successful. They wanted to be successful within their communities. Like, okay, within Japan, will this sell well? Will this be a thing? You know what I'm saying? Will people enjoy it? Also the manga, uh, mangaka, which are the, the name for the uh, people who draw and make manga. Those artists had a lot more free reign to do what they want to do without so much oversight, unless they were with a big company like Shueisha or Shonen Jump or anything like that. They had a lot more freedom to make whatever kind of stories they wanted without being fear of it being not accepted. So you had so many crazy stories that were coming out that were kind of just the wild, wild west. And the themes that they were exploring, because you got to remember, after World War II, the acting budget was basically gone. Like movie budget, all the kind of cinema budget, that was like almost an afterthought. They were focusing on rebuilding their country because people like, you know, people tend to forget that it's not just the bomb in 1945 that messed with Japan. It was like the 15, 20 years later of the radiation fallout. People that more people die from radiation fallout than the actual bombs. So that's a big thing. Like not to get like, you know, again, political, all kind of stuff like on here, but it's a, it's a big deal to talk about. Um, so a lot of um, the a lot of that time was spent rebuilding the country. Um, America essentially came to Japan, rewrote the Constitution in 1946. So like. It was almost kind of like a, a, a complete 180, what was had um, between American, uh, sorry, uh, um, American acceptance in Japan. And I, the thing that's most interesting to me is that there was a lot of post-war art that was coming out by a lot of the people that we consider to be the founders of manga and anime, like Osamu Tezuka, who made Astro Boy. And we know about Astro Boy, it's like, you know, probably one of the most famous, you know, of them. Um, but there's the, considered the first anime. And during that time, um, there was a lot of post-war stuff being made. People like Osama Tezuka were very inspired by Disney. Like he was like, apparently his, his parents were like rich or something. And he had like access to a film, like uh, uh, a viewing room where he was viewing Disney stuff. He drew Bambi like 80 times or something like that over and over again. He was very inspired by that stuff. But the difference is that the Japanese were always like, even before the bomb, but let's say right after the bomb, it was made more explicit, always aware of their mortality, their ephemerality. Um, their tradition, their connection to their family, their connection to their homeland. And they were for the next decades after that, they were constantly exploring what that meant to them and what that meant to everybody. And all of the music, all of the art, all of the, the cinema, everything reflected that tone. It doesn't necessarily reflect the story, but it reflected the tone of what was being made by these Japanese artists. And that was a big deal because when you fast forward to the 90s, now you have these artists that were the children of those people so they didn't necessarily go through the bomb, but they went through the air. They went through like the, the, the atmosphere of what their parents were feeling. And so now you have this, this new way of expressing these new stories that were completely different than anything they ever saw before. What was happening in America during this time in the 60s and 70s? Jabberjaw, Scooby-Doo, the Jetsons. You know what I'm saying? These are made like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like that, that, that's what was happening. Pleasantville. During this time. <laughs> exactly. Wait, huh, sorry? It's like Pleasantville kind of vibes. Pleasantville. Yeah. yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like that, that's, that's what the vibe was. And of course you had certain exceptions, but for the most part, what was happening in Japan was kind of just like a free for all. You had the children's shows that were played at the same time as like things like, you know, you had Transformers and stuff like that at the same time as played by Akira which is ridiculous. Like, you know, everybody should go and check out Akira. Of course, Hayao Miyazaki, the Ghibli films, these things are such a specific vibe that if a kid sees that stuff, it's going to have a big effect on them, especially if they're, you know, living in America where we have a lot more freedom to express certain things, right? We have a lot more freedom to express like how we're not as repressed as a culture to express certain feelings that we have. So where the Japanese are expressing it through our art, we're going to be expressing it through our daily lives. And I think that's why you actually see so many black kids 
growing up with Dragon Ball Z and how hip hop has actually been extremely influenced by Dragon Ball Z. And I talk about this a lot, like the effect that seeing like Vegeta or Goku powering up whatever had on like a community of people that wanted to, you know, wanted the inspiration to fight, wanted the inspiration to like be better, be the better selves, be the inspiration to transform and go beyond because they were always at this lower point. But they saw these characters see somebody like Frieza, who is essentially the characterization and like the fictional characterization of a racist, the fictional characterization of a slave owner, the fictional characterization of this bigot who wants to control all the land. He thought the Saiyans were just all monkeys. He wanted to destroy them. Whereas like Goku, like the most powerful of all the monkeys is like, no, I'm gonna prove you wrong. We are, you know, like we can, we can be strong, we can overcome. That resonated with a lot of people, including people like me. And so seeing all that stuff was very powerful. It was a lot more powerful than seeing the other stuff that I was seeing on TV at the time, you know? And so to be able to see where like in Japan, that was just their default mode, you know? <laughs> that was just the default mode in Japan. You know, obviously everyone was inspired by it and loved it. It meant something different over here. Those of, us who, those of us over in America who were experiencing that kind of stuff at the time, before it became mainstream, I think were impacted by that in a way that can never really be, you know, like that we're affected by that that can never really be replicated, you know, unless something like that, something else like that would happen again. And that's one of the reasons why it was such a big deal to me because of that, like the way we were able to see what the Japanese were inspired by us to do to then create something that then further inspired us to do more again. And I think that that feeding cycle is important, you know? Absolutely. Yo, that was, that was, bro, you just gave us a history lesson, uh, Pat. Like, that was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, man. I was trying to, can, that's like, it's, it's short and, you know, Yo, like, there's a lot of holes in that. But I hope Cass is at home taking notes because they're going to have to do some Googling later, man. Yeah, <laughs> you know I got a lot, of, I, a lot of Google searches ahead of me. <laughs> that's right. This is a good time for us to go ahead and get into the J Music uh, song, What's Going On? And it's from y'all's latest record, uh, Meta. Help me out. Meta Groove, sure. Meta you want to play that one first? Okay. Yeah, I want to play that one first just because that's that's where we at right now. So let's um, sure. let's dig into that one and um, see how we go. Here we go, y'all.
Patrick. That was insane, bro. That was <laughs> that was insane. a journey. <laughs> Thank you, man. Uh, hey, man. Next time y'all record, can I just hang out in the studio? You know, y'all need bro, somebody to get man. some water. What? You know, <laughs> you gonna play if you in the studio? Give me what that means. Yeah, I play for free, man. Just hit me up, man. That's crazy. <laughs> hey, don't say that. On, don't say that on the stream, bro. You gonna no, get some texts? Only for you. Well, only everybody for you. in the chat be like, "Hey, man, can you do this gig? <laughs> um, can you do this gig in Throg's neck? <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, six a.m. to nine a.m. Um, right, old school. Don't pay, but you get a uh, you no get breaks. Food, no breaks, uh, and you know I'll put you in touch with, my, with a producer. Oh, jeez, no, 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 no. I can't, I can't do. It. Actually, you know, I changed my mind. I don't play free gigs, y'all. Don't call me for that shit. That's again. <laughs> like, I'm about to say, I know Daria. Daria would never say that. <laughs> I, I, I know you. Oh man, that was great, man. So thank you, you bro. So I appreciate it. Man. How did this project really come? First of all, no, fuck that. Who's in this band? Okay. Um, so, of course, it's me on saxophone. Um, Max Boyko is on trumpet on this cut specifically. Um, I just think the people on this cut, and then I'll you know, tell you who was on the actual record. Because the whole record is kind of like this collage of like 15 different people that I'm extremely grateful to have. It's one of the biggest crossovers, one of the biggest collaborations that I've been a part of, and definitely the biggest thing that I've done um, as a leader. But it's myself, of course, Max Boyko on trumpet, um, Sean Ritchie on guitar, um, Matt Wong on keys, um, Brad Miller is playing bass. Um, of course, Chris Williams um, is one of the arrangers, but he also is a multi-instrumentalist playing um, the set, the synth keys um, on this track. Um, and of course, uh, I said Brad Miller, he's on bass, and J.K. Kim, John Cook Kim um, on the drums. And um, wow. the alternate musicians on the other, on other um, takes, you also have Jonah Moss steps in for some screaming lead trumpet on two tracks. Um, Toby Epinobi plays trombone. Um, and then our special guests, we had two wonderful vocalists, three wonderful vocalists, actually. Um, vocalist Ruby Choi, um, who I went to school with at MSM. Um, Carlea, you know Carlea Lene oh, yeah. is actually on this Absolutely. record as well. Um, and, you know, I had to get her on it. Um, she does an awesome job on it. And, of course, the wonderful um, singer and voice actress Sapphire, who many in the Jamie's community um, know. She's well-known, um, great sister who does um, a lot of different anime and video game covers on YouTube as well. Um, go check out her page. She has, like, 200,000 subs. Um, she's a great singer. Of course, you had the 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 bass phenom and music theory extraordinary Adam Neely is playing bass on this. Absolutely. Um, our boy Norman Edwards, the powerhouse, is playing drums on a few tracks. Um, Kento Iwasaki. I had to bring the I had to bring the 20 AD to the 2020 AD. We got Kento Iwasaki playing koto, um, the little um, ancient Japanese classical instruments um, that is played on one of the tracks, and then Chris Williams. Um, in addition to being a, a great instrumentalist, is also rapping. He, he introduces some verses on here as well. So wow, it's a really big thing, and I'm really grateful that we had the opportunity to do it. Also, the guitarist Momega. I cannot forget the first track on the album features the other great guitarist and cover artist um, Momega on guitar. Wow, what a group, man! And if you're listening to this on a podcast, and uh, you gotta go app, go to the comment section or to the notes right now. And click the link and buy ten copies of this record because it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Thank you. It's Bandcamp, so yeah. all the proceeds um, go to us. So, and also this Friday, um, they're doing a Bandcamp Friday thing too. So we're actually getting all the proceeds this Friday. If you want to go, want to go support the band directly. So Absolutely. You. Well, it comes out on Friday, so yeah, y'all, y'all, y'all do what he said. Follow directions. I, man, I do want to switch gears and and because we're coming to the end of the interview here. And uh, what do you think is next? for us in the music community like how do we how do we make a living now that we can't play like you know greg was playing arenas with blue blade we can't do that no more how do we how do we do it man i think that's definitely the most depressing thing to think about with this whole pandemic is the fact that the job of being a musician was essentially the first one to go and it seems like the last one that'll come back you know what i mean just because of what entails art in our job you know, filling seats, filling arenas, like you said. But at the same time, I feel like it does not have to be the first job to die um, because people still love music and people still love this, which means that, you know, there's so many, so many different ways that we can still engage and interact with people um, if we're willing to make certain things happen. And there are different types of live stream concerts that are happening all over the internet, all over the world, which even though there's still even though it's still rough, you know, we want to play for a live audience. Um, you don't have to deal with latency when you do that because you can still play live. Um, there's also different collaboration videos. People make distant collabs. You know, like we can essentially like we're recording an album 
um, you know, in the studio, just live. We're making videos. We can do the same thing we would do. Like I send a track to you, you record this, record that. So certain dynamic things like jazz, I still want to do live with people, but other types of music are still able to be done and we're still doing it and continue to do it. We just need to, I think, um, kind of make the gear shift fast, as fast as possible for those who are not used to doing that. Because the reason why um, I've been you know, very fortunate to have still continued the business that I've been doing um, uh, as the pandemic started is because this is something that I started seven years ago. Mm. Like I, I, I started doing this out of necessity. It wasn't even because, you know, I just wanted to do this new thing. No, I was, it was taking all of my money away. All the money I would make from gigs, I would make sure I set it aside for rent and then take another big chunk of it and put it towards the band. It would essentially be a long-term investment that seemed like a, at, at first it could, felt like a bad investment. You know what I'm saying? That would, I would get no return from, but of course it did because I was, I was not investing in money. I was investing in the future, hmm. you know? And so the things that I put in place were out of necessity due to the fact that I didn't feel accepted in the jazz world to do this music. Like, I feel like I had to be under the, 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 the tightrope and the collar, you know, the leash and collar of big old donors, you know, where it's like, again, we still love and appreciate all of them. But the fact that jazz is essentially ruled by old money is a thing that I think we're starting to understand has a limitation mm -hmm. that we didn't see that limitation before because of the fact that everything could be live. But when the money that we're depending on to run things doesn't have an idea of what the future is supposed to be like, now the ball's in our court. Can we be our own economists? Can we be our own managers? Can we be our own self-sustaining unit? And where that lies is in understanding where the future audience is. And I found and discovered, for me personally, that the new jazz audience is video gamers. Um, huh. And the reason why is because if you see who all the big YouTubers are right now that are jazz YouTubers, you know, people like Adam Neely, um, uh, uh, Carlos, Insane and Rain Music, a lot of these people, like, they are making either jazz covers and stuff or explaining jazz concepts to people. And while I wish some of them, not the names I name, but, you know, I do wish that some of them would talk more about the history of the music. That's where people like me, I want to come in and do that. But I also think that there's so many people in our community that I keep looking at Twitch. I keep looking at YouTube like, man, if any of my friends, just like, just my college friends got on the Twitch, they would smoke so many of the people that I know. And I don't want to name any names, but it's just like, it's just ridiculous. But because they don't know how to use, you know, a lot of them still rock an iPhone 4. You know what I'm saying? Like, they don't know anything about, which is fine. That's, I, I, I'm all for deconnecting. I think we should. The pandemic makes that difficult, right? Right. So how do we stay connected and still stay human? Well, I think if we are preaching human concepts using these tools that we have, we can make a really big impact because there's audiences out there that want to hear this stuff, that are very hungry, that are not musicians. The people that have been buying our album, Metagroup, that came out in September, have, for the majority, not been musicians. They've just been video gamers. And they're hearing this stuff. They're hearing us play the lineage of Billy Cobham, the lineage of Charlie Parker, the lineage of Jaco Pastores. They're hearing that stuff, not even understanding all of that, but they know that they want to hear it. And so, like, we're trying to be there to explain it to them. So those people already know how to use Switch. Those people already know how to use this stuff. So me trying to reach out to them, um, you know, it's, I used to run this thing called Sunday Jazz School, where, like, every Sunday I would get there um, on Twitch and I would, like, say, hey, here's our request. Like, you get to... You get to request J-pop songs. You get to request video game songs. And now, after that, now that I got you here, here's an hour-long presentation on why Louis Armstrong is important. Huh. Never, They never heard of Louis Armstrong. They never heard of G. Ellington. Now, you can probably ask the chat right now, who is Wayne Shorter? And they got you. And they oh, never yeah. probably even played an instrument. Wow. <laughs> you know that's what I'm saying? Up. Just because, like, that's, that's the kind of thing that I think is important. That those are kind of the, 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 the gap that's being bridged. Now, why video gamers? Well, it's because if... Think about an interesting thing that happened when the pandemic started. Um, first of all, we talked about Facebook being feeling like outdated, right? The reason why Facebook feels outdated is because Facebook is a insular application. You can only connect with people that you know. The thing about Twitter is that you can, you don't have to put your real identity on Twitter. You know what I'm saying? You can put a username. You don't have to put your actual name. You don't have to put your contact info, all that kind of stuff. You don't have to do all that kind of stuff. Facebook was originally meant to connect with people that you knew and people that you might know. Mm -hmm. Twitter is a platform to just put things out there and reach a wide community of people. And so I'm not sitting there trying to praise any social media platforms because I think they're all flawed in some kind of way. But the thing that I think is cool is that the, when the pandemic hit, a lot of jazz musicians that we know were scrambling, un, like understandably. 
And I felt bad because I was like, everybody's like, hey, let's do like 1,000 sub. Everybody get 1,000 subs on YouTube. I'm almost there. I'm like, man, if I brought, if I broke down to you what CPM actually was and, you know, like cost per mile, which in this case translates to cost per minute on YouTube, mm-hmm. 1,000 subs is not enough to get monetized. You then need 4,000 viewer hours, which means you need 4,000 unique, unique views, like hours of viewership from different people on these videos to then be considered to meet the $100 threshold that you need to make before you get your first payment from YouTube. Right. And that is the bare minimum. And that took, when I first got monetized, that took us about eight months just to get a hundred dollars. Wow. So it's a thing that it's just like starting to become a jazz musician. It's one of those things, right? Where like, you don't get into this for the money. You get in this because you love doing it. And so I felt like a lot of jazz musicians just scrambling, just scrambling. Cause like, we need to do this. We need to do this quick. We gotta, we gotta do this. And like, hold on, give me a thousand subscribers so I can make money. It's like that doesn't work it's unfortunate that that just does not work like that and especially because if that many people were getting on that fast it will oversaturate the market and take away views from other creators Mm -hmm. so you need to be doing things because you love it you need to be doing things because that's something that you just want to do otherwise it'll be a very hard process just like playing music itself absolutely Um, and so i think the way that we can get integrated into this thing is by going out and searching for different content creators that do the thing that we're trying to do if you're trying to learn how to play saxophone in your jazz musician then instead of just, you know, look up how to play the saxophone on YouTube, whatever, and just try to do something, check out, find out who the cats are on your instrument and learn from them. It's the same thing with streaming. If you want to learn how to stream, like check out even the biggest names like Ninja or like, you know, like Critical or like, you know, all of these people, you know, like check out these, you know, check out what they do, you know, Pokimane, you know, even though like they're really like, you know, Winton level type streamer in terms of like, like fame and stuff like that. You can still learn something from how they set their stuff up. You can learn something from what they do before their streams. You can look at some smaller streamers too. You know, you can go on Twitch, hit the browsing category, go to YouTube browse category, find out who's live and just watch a bunch of stuff and take notes. That's really important because if you just go live without any kind of foundation or kind of any kind of idea of what you want to do, then it's like going and soloing over freaking giant steps without ever even heard the Coltrane solo before. Absolutely. You have no frame of reference. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I think that if we want to get into that thing, we have to go do our research just the same way that we do our research with playing. And it'll help us a lot with deciding if that's something that we specifically want to do. Um, Because otherwise, there are many different creative ways that I see people to take in charge that I think work really well for the platform that you're trying to operate in. Emmett Cohen is one of those people that is actually like, you know, of course, y'all know Emmett, but for those who are in the chat who don't know, um, I've sent you all um, those of you from J Music, I've sent you links to go watch live streams. I'm a part of them. He makes concerts, live stream concerts that people can then donate to, and he restreams them across all platforms: YouTube, Facebook, all that kind of stuff like that. And then, and then I put out the word to him. I say, "Hey, you should put up vods too." And then he ended up doing that, like put up little clips and stuff. So we're all the community is all helping each other. And I think once we start doing that and start reaching out to the people who are watching, because it's not just Barbara S. Or, you know, Richard J that are going to be watching this stuff. You know what I'm saying? It's, you know, freaking, uh, you know, little Pop-Tart, you know, 433 on Twitch or something. Like, they're the ones that are watching this stuff. They're the ones that are actually there. They want to support Nintendo. They want to support Sony and give them their money. They'll support you the same way because they want to see their favorite creators do well. And that's the audience that's not asking for free comps. Wow. That's the audience, you know what I'm saying? There are people out there that actually really want to support it. So, to me, that's really the advice. Wow. That's great. Man, before we get out of here, Greg, you got anything you want to hit? Patrick, you just dropped so much knowledge in the last five minutes. There were like five <laughs> or six times that I was just like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> but, but man, I'm at the I'm I'm scraping the barrel, man. There's still so many people that do this better than me. I'm learning from them every day, you know. But I love, I guess, I guess the, the biggest takeaway is um success leaves clues. And if you try to achieve something. <clears throat> There's someone out there who's doing it and you just have to check out how they're doing it. Cause, cause there it's it, literally, there's a trail of like how we got to this point. And I appreciate you sharing that advice and, and, um, and information with everyone. And I also appreciate how you're using um, J music as a platform to share the history of our music and our ancestors. So, so one of the things I just wanted to say is like, I love that you were talking about the, uh, the Japanese, reverence for um, tradition and things of that sort. Yeah. And I think that's that's a direct connection between the music we play and probably anime. And I think that 
It's, yeah, it's a beautiful absolutely. thing that you're using this as a, as a means to educate people about how we got to this point and the great musicians from America. Thank you, man. Yeah. Hey, listen, Pat, thank you so much for coming on to the Working Artist Project. And for those of you who are, who've never heard of us, now you have. So go on over there, hit that like button, subscribe. Check yeah, subscribe. us out at secondlinearts.org. And you can, you can see all the different projects we have. And if you want to support us, hit that donate button. And we really want you to support our, our guest artist today totally. and, and go buy 10 copies of his record. <laughs> you know what I mean? Buy 10 copies and give 10 people a gift. Nine people. And buy 11 copies in that case. But, uh, man, thank you so much for coming on the Working Artist Project. I'm Darian Douglas. Uh, my name is Gregory Ajit. Thank you very much, Patrick. This was beautiful. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Hope to be back soon. And we'll, uh, we'll catch all y'all later. Peace. Absolutely. One, two, three, two, two.